Oh no, inflation's too low. The Federal Reserve is going to need a new target. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. I was going to say what day it is, but I'm not sure I even know. It's Thursday, right? Thursday. Thursday, indeed. Look, David, I was looking at the headlines today. This one from Canada's National Post jumped out at me. It's, Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show is fun, but likely doomed. Here's what I have to say. What are the Canadians doing telling us that Jimmy Fallon is doomed? They're allowed to. We can say that. They're not allowed to say that. It's not the U.S. Tonight Show. It's just the Tonight Show. It's the whole world show. They can say it. It's you defending. He's from, I think he's from, like, upstate New York. That's practically Canada. It is. It is. close. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm still not, I'm still not crazy about Canada coming in and telling us that Jimmy Fallon. Favorite Canadian. Michael J. Fox. All right. It's easy. How about you? Celine Dion. Oh, you just, (laughs) you don't know what you just said there. First headline of the day. I am not a Celine Dion fan. This comes from CNN Money. Fed debated how to signal a rate hike. The minutes from the last Federal Reserve meeting came out yesterday. I know you care so much about this, David. Inflation's getting too low. Mm-hmm. Inflation's almost at that 6.5% target. Unemployment? Oh, yes. I hope inflation, inflation isn't there. Unemployment is getting too low. It's almost at that 6.5% target that the Fed had set and basically said, hey, when unemployment, not inflation, when unemployment gets to 6.5%, we might think about raising up the rates a little bit. Now, they haven't been saying that recently. Recently, they've been saying it'll get to 6.5% and we'll keep rates at 0% way beyond that. Mm-hmm. Extended period beyond extended that. Extended period. Way extended. Right. I think way extended was the way they put it in the, in the <laughs> yeah, minutes. exactly. But now they're talking about potentially having a new target. Does it... This could be inflation. They could be targeting inflation on the downside. This potentially worries me a little bit. Does this concern you? Concerning? I don't know. I think it points out that the Fed, this isn't just some scary secret group of people. This is people. They're people, and they they don't know what's going to happen either. As much as we think, the Fed is people. As much as we like to think that they can predict the future and know exactly what's going to happen with unemployment and inflation, they don't. And their targets are going to have to move. So they're moving their targets. Stuff's going to change. And even in times of crisis, they're going to go do unconventional things. We saw that happen in 2008. We've seen that for the last couple of years. They don't just one of the last people even suggesting that the Fed could predict the future. Right. So why are we so worried about their targets if they're probably just going to change them and do something different a couple of years down the road? That is why I don't pay too much attention to the Fed because stuff's going to change. Well, I got to say... At first glance, it seems crazy to me to have the Fed saying, well, we're going to start targeting inflation on, on the low side. So when inflation is too low, we're going to try to get it up to 2%. But when you think about it, they're targeting on the high side. They want to bring it down if it gets too high. So if it gets too low, perhaps they should be targeting it there too. I mean, part of what they're doing is trying to maintain some, some sense of certainty. <clears throat> You're not going to get certainty, but some sense of certainty around what's happening to the money supply, so if they can keep inflation around sort of a predictable level, maybe that helps the market in the long term. They'll figure it out, maybe. Second headline. We'll see. All right, going over to Bloomberg. Allstate authorizes $2.5 billion share repurchase program. I've got a couple stats for you here on, on Allstate. Yeah, you said that before the show, and you wouldn't even let me I see them. Even, you're, you and everyone else learning this for the first time. Over the last 10 years, tangible book value, just overall tangible book mm-hmm. value, is down at Allstate. Over the last 10 years. Last 10 years, okay. Yeah, they haven't grown book value at all. Book value per share, tangible book value per share, up 55%. 
So this has basically all been, been driven by share buybacks. So this isn't anything new we're seeing at Allstate there. That's really what's going to get them forward. They're not, they're not a huge compounder of book value there through their business, so they need to buy back shares to move that forward, which begs the question... Do you, why buy? Are, are you interested why, in Allstate? Why would you buy? Why would you buy Allstate stock? Exactly. Which is which is, I think where this where this conversation starts. Buying back two point five billion dollars in stock, but should investors be interested in buying it? I'm I'm not really convinced that that the answer is yes. I mean, we're in a world now where we're moving more and more towards direct d- direct sales insurance. Mm-hmm. So what that means is. The progressives of the world where people call progressive directly or go onto the progressive website and buy the insurance directly. Geico is an even uh, better example of that. They, they were sort of the pioneer in doing this. Not only do people do a lot of people prefer that now because it's an easier, quicker way to do it, but it's much cheaper right. for the business. And Geico, of course, owned by Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett has loved this business for a long time, and I'm sure he loves it even more now that it's got this direct model. Uh, now, granted, you have to spend t- to to make this direct model work. You have to spend a lot on marketing. That's why we see that Geico yep. gecko all over the place. But Allstate spends a lot too. Right, right. The, the, the but but the overall expenses are, are so much lower. So y- you'll get people that will argue the other side and say, "Hey, some people are still going to want to buy." insurance from a broker. And that's that's true, and I think it's true particularly now, but I think this tide is going to continue to change. Maybe Allstate changes with it, but that's part of my concern over buying Allstate. And that that weighs against the fact that it does Allstate does have a very high market share in both the personal auto market and the uh, homeowners insurance market. So that's in their favor, but I don't know how that holds up over time. But they had the huge market share over the last 10 years and didn't even grow tangible book value. So sure. With a shrinking market share potentially from Progressive and Geico and all the other ones, how are they going to do it in the next 10 years? So I'm with you. I, I don't get too excited about this. Third headline. This, goes, this is from the Wall Street Journal. NASDAQ to offer kill switch feature by March 1st. We heard a lot about this kill switch idea when Knight Capital's trading algorithm went absolutely crazy. Uh, basically trading all over the place, losing the firm a whole bunch of money, spooking the markets, getting everybody concerned about robots trading and all this kind of stuff, algorithms gone wild. I'll tell you what, I would rather not there be. I, I would rather there not be a kill switch. You like the chaos. I, I like the chaos. I like the chaos. I think there's opportunity for me in chaos, potential opportunity. The, and and I don't see downside for me in the chaos because what I'm buying when I go out into the stock market and buy something is I'm buying a piece of a business. And so if some crazy robot algorithm all of a sudden decides to start selling down the price of that business, I'm confident that over time humans will look at that. And, and the market will look at that, and it will value it as it's supposed to be valued. So if in one day my holdings of something dropped 20% because of some stupid robot, it was misprogrammed, that's okay with me. So, so if you don't it, like the switch, is it a good thing for NASDAQ shareholders, though? Is this a good thing for their business? I, I, think, I think it is. I think it is. And, and, and I think it is for this reason, because they have to respond to this kind of thing. And they, they have to ma- maintain... Uh, they want people to be comfortable mm-hmm. using the NASDAQ exchange, uh, trading on NASDAQ, and not everybody shares my, my same view. Right. Certainly day traders are not going to share my view mm-hmm. because they need predictability to be able to do whatever it is, whatever kind of uh, alchemy they're doing there. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's a good idea for NASDAQ to do this and for companies that use 
uh, algorithms that do a lot of computer-based trading, it's probably good for them, too, because this would potentially stop something from getting too far out of control. All right. Well, I'm sorry they didn't take your thoughts into consideration. They didn't even you call. You didn't like the case. They didn't even call. <laughs> Just rude. They didn't even ask. Typical Nasdaq. <laughs> Typical. Focus for today, we're going to talk about a little bit about the liability side of a bank balance sheet. So we talk, people think, I, I think people focus a lot on the asset side of a bank balance sheet, and that's fine. It's more fun. It's, it's more fun. It's, it's more noticeable. When, when a bank's growing loans, you can, you can imagine, okay, they're lending out more money. <clears throat> they make money on those loans. So obviously, you'd think that's, you know. That, it's good. Yeah, it's good. It's got to be good. Cashing in, making, making more. But it's the liability side that, that is really where banks get a lot of their value from. Because it's only through the funding on the liability side that they're even able to do anything on the mm-hmm. asset side. And based on the mix of funding on the liability side of that balance sheet, uh, a bank can be significantly more profitable or less based on where it's get, getting its funding funded. It, it can also be riskier or less based on where it's getting its funding from. So let's start with the question of deposits. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got a chart for us, right? We do have a chart. And for those of you listening, we'll, <clears throat> we'll read the chart a little bit. Uh, so we have seven banks here from, from B of I, Bank of Internet, all the way up to, to Bank of America in, in size here, and how much they can differ in terms of what's on the liability side. So here we're looking at non-interest-bearing deposits. So you and I have checking accounts, probably don't pay interest on them, non-interest-bearing checking deposit uh, from people and businesses. At B of I, that's only 5% of deposits. Over at Silicon, Silicon Valley Bancorp, mm-hmm. 71%. So you can have huge differences on the liability side, and that makes a huge difference in terms of what they're paying out in interest. And like you said, I think a lot of people go to the balance sheet, look at the assets, then they go to the income statement and say, well, how do they make their money? All right, that's all I need to know. Mm-hmm. That's a huge difference right there, 71% to 5%. What should we... T- is it... By just looking at it saying, B of I is bad... Silicon Valley is good. Is, is it that cut and dry or no? It's, it's not quite that cut and dry. It, they're different models, right? So Bank of Internet is attracting depositors based on the fact that it's paying higher rates to depositors mm-hmm. than everybody else. So it's a, it, it's a conscious choice in terms of how they're running their business. Silicon Valley Bank, on the other hand, uh, as the other extreme example, offers a specific niche banking experience and, and specific value to, to most of its customers. So it's, it's basically the venture capital bank. So all these venture capital companies in Silicon Valley, they go to Silicon Valley Bank. The companies work with Silicon Valley Bank. That bank is used to not only to have the relationships built, but it's used to working with these small up-and-coming businesses, and that's a very different thing. So with that value comes the, the ability to attract deposits where people are de- these companies are depositing money and they don't need to be compensated in the form of, of interest the way that a depositor at Bank of Internet uh, would need to be because that's the, that's the only way that Bank of Internet is drawing them in. Um, this, has, this, this has a bunch of different uh, takeaways. I mean, one of them, obviously, is cost. It doesn't get lower cost in terms of your deposits than free. Right. And we're not seeing the big gulf on that right now because interest rates are so low in general. But as interest rates rise, any bank with a higher percentage of non-interest-bearing deposits is going to have a growing advantage because a bank like Bank of the Internet is going to have to keep up 
not only keep up, probably more than keep up mm-hmm. with interest with rising interest rates because otherwise depositors are going to go elsewhere. So if you look at look at B of I with only five percent non-interest bearing, and then Bank of America at around twenty to thirty percent. So when rates rise, that's going to impact B of I a lot quicker than Bank of America potentially. Potentially, on the expense side. Potentially, all other things held equal. Yeah. So does the question also become if B of I and, and New York Community Bank, which uses a lot of funding debt to, to fund their, their assets? Do they get hurt in a rising interest rate environment? What happens if those deposits leave B of I? What what happens if they leave? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's not ideal, and that's this this would get too far into B of I. But they've also lent out a huge amount of their deposits. They've lent out hundred basically a hundred percent of their mm-hmm. deposits. So they have to keep their funding intact in order to keep their balance sheet stable. So they're going to have to find funding somewhere, and part of that is going to have to be keeping up with the rising mm-hmm. interest rates because that's how they're going to that's how they're going to keep it. What what B of I has working for it is that it has such a low overhead model. It has so little expense in its business model that so so much of the so much of the profits fall down to the bottom line. So that allows it to pay out uh, more on its deposits and still keep a very profitable business. Mm-hmm. So that works in its favor. Uh, New York Community Bank Corp is, is kind of a little bit different, but you can think of that in the same way. Mm-hmm. Pretty low overhead there, too. Very high, a very low efficiency rate. Right. Meaning, again, this is a very profitable bank. So there's different there's different levers that we can think about. But in general, when you're when you're thinking about um, where the, where the funding comes from, the other thing that you have to think about too is that is that risk that comes with it. So we've talked about costs now. So the costs can vary considerably mm-hmm. based on non-interest versus interest bearing. But there are a lot of different ways outside of deposits that banks can fund themselves. And when we think back to the, the, the pre-crisis era, a lot of banks were going to uh, commercial paper funding, mm-hmm. wholesale funding, uh, repo funding for, for these big banks, for Merrill Lynch, for Lehman mm-hmm. Brothers, for even Bank of America and over at Citigroup. Mm-hmm. And the problem with these short-term, uh, these short-term funding sources... Riskier. Riskier. Yeah. And when they start to go, you've got to scramble. Mm-hmm. Th- these banks have to scramble to make sure that they can maintain funding or else they've got to start into this fire sale mm-hmm. process of getting rid of assets so that they keep their And that's their what balance. we saw a little bit with Countrywide before Bank of America bought them. They were trying to get into the deposit business, into the banking business, so they could have low-cost funding. Right. They didn't have to rely on short-term funding because they could see the trouble that was brewing mm-hmm. and they would have to sell assets and it would really hurt their liquidity position, which it did, but Bank of America ultimately stepped in and bought them probably not a good move in retrospect. Right. It's, it's very attractive to have those de- the, the, that deposit base mm-hmm. as part of the funding source. We've seen, uh, we've seen Capital One acquire the ING direct business and move more aggressively into mm-hmm. core banking operations. Uh, that helps its funding base. Uh, we've seen Discover. Discover has its own uh, sort of bank arm to it. The more that Discover moves over towards banking <laughs> operations and can attract deposits, the, the more stable its funding sources become. So again, I, I think it's easy for, for investors to, to open up the financial statements of a bank, concentrate on the asset side of that, that balance sheet, look over, like you said, at the income statement, where's the money coming in. But it's really that, that funding side of the equation for a bank that, that a lot of the value stems from. Doesn't get enough love. Doesn't that get liability enough. side. Just Sounds scary, si- but it's sitting, not. Sitting in the corner, just weeping. Yes. Weeping. Nobody loves me. Crying deposits. I'm just lonely deposits. All right, uh, going to the mailbag, we have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. We love to get emails, so go ahead and send us one. 
Cool. We have a question today. The question comes from Jonathan. Jonathan writes, MasterCard and Visa seem to be mirrors of each other. So presumably neither can dictate a price as the other could undercut. So they both have to take the price of the market or collude. Amex, on the other hand, is not only a slightly different business, but is also able, to a much greater extent, to set a price. It charges merchants more and does this by getting customers to want to use Amex. And in many cases, the customer seems so keen to use Amex, they will pay for the card. Does this not mean that if you want to invest in a card provider, Amex is the one? On the Buffett basis, that is better, better to buy a good business at a fair price than a fair business at a good price, or am I missing something fundamental? David, is Amex the one credit card company that you should buy? I do own Amex, and I do not own the other, so I'm going to side with Jonathan Whew, here a little bit. Go. And he says they must either take the price of the market or collude. And I'm not going to say they're colluding, but there, there is some kind of market expectations or competitive expectations there between them. They're, the discounts they charge to banks and merchants are they're pretty similar. It, it, they are basically, I'm not going to say colluding, but kind of. Um, I do like the... Careful am- there. We don't <laughs> want a legal review. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they're similar. Let's, let's leave it at that. Um, I do like the business model at Amex better. Um, they're not as much a middleman. MasterCard and Visa are a straight-up middleman, if you think about it that way, between mm-hmm. the banks the banks and the, and the merchant there. Amex, the only relationship with the cardholder. People pay for the cards. I mean, people are diehard about their Amex. People sure. use them and pay monthly fees for them. They get great service with them. They get travel perks with them. And then, like you said, Amex demands a higher discount from merchants. So they make more from every transaction because there's that demand from customers. So a little over 50% of their revenue comes from that discount revenue, charging essentially merchants, uh, merchant banks for that revenue. MasterCard and Visa, it's essentially all of that revenue. That's their only revenue source. 15% of Amex comes from interest income of mm-hmm. the revenue, and then the rest is split between fees, card fees, travel commissions, etc. So it's a much more diversified business model. The price today, in my opinion, is okay. It's not a glaring buy, in my opinion. I think it's a decent, I think it's a fair price for a really is good it a, business. Is it a more fair, I mean, we, t- we talk about MasterCard and Visa, is it a more fair c- price than what we're seeing for MasterCard or Visa? I don't think there's the same technology risk with Amex. I don't think their business can change as quickly as Visa and MasterCard could potentially. And there's still a lot of opportunity to go abroad. I know it's American Express, but they are working on getting into China. They're huge in Europe. They're huge corporate. They have a huge corporate business as well. So I think it's a fair price. So you think it's a better price than for Visa or MasterCard? I own it, yeah. Put my money where my mouth is. (laughs) Look, I I don't know. it's a compelling argument, but on the other hand, when you think about when we think about Jonathan's question in particular, uh, Amex as having a better moat than Visa or Mastercard, I, I, you know, thinking about Visa and Mastercard is kind of thinking about Coke and Pepsi. Would you say that Coke and Pepsi don't have a moat? No, you never would. And, and particularly Coke, I mean, Warren Buffett—that's one of his favorite stocks. That's the second largest holding at uh, Berkshire Hathaway. So y- you can have sort of this oligopolistic competition at the top and still have some pretty deep moats. And I think that is the case for Visa and MasterCard. And they're just really two different business models and two different approaches for attacking the credit card opportunity. It's like saying, well, is there a moat at Walmart or is there a moat at Nordstrom? 
I think there's a mode of both, mm-hmm. but, but for different reasons. Nordstrom is very high-end, very customer service-oriented. Walmart is very customer service-oriented. Oh, wait, no, 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 it's not. Walmart <laughs> gives you low, low prices, and that's what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think there's moats at both. Yeah, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying MasterCard and Visa don't have a moat. That's mode. exactly what you were saying. <laughs> you you were quote. trying to say rewind that there was the no... Rewind the tape. David said there's no moat at Visa and MasterCard. I just think the price, that you're paying, that you're the price that you're paying today for Visa and MasterCard... Plus, I think there is a risk to their technology and to their. Why is there not position. a technology technology risk at, at Amex? Because there's actually a customer base that values their service. No one, no one would cry if, v, if Visa wasn't around tomorrow. You could use Mastercard. What if Visa? Right? And, well, what if Visa and Mastercard were no longer around? End of the world. Then. End of the world. I'm not switching to Amex. All right. Do you do you carry an Amex card? Yeah. How many? How often do you use it? Twenty. How often do you use it? Uh, several times a week. A- like once a week, whenever you're at a place that happens to take Amex. Please. Visa is everywhere you want to be. All right. Or is that MasterCard? It's MasterCard Visa. is Visa's, MasterCard's priceless, too. So All right. you got that. All right. We have a game for today. The game is Fool in the Blank. We're going to have, what do we have? Two or three scenarios today. We've got three scenarios today. We're going to Fool in the Blank, which is a cute way of saying fill it in. It is cute. Because we come up with clever things like that. All right. First scenario. Brian Moynihan's 17% raise is steep, but justified. Got to give him credit. Is that really steep? 17% really that steep? I didn't get a 17% raise. (laughs) Um, All right. I think it's justified because obviously... Actually, 17% is... is Obviously, performance has picked up at Bank of America. Net income last year is basically equivalent to the previous four years combined. And... Say what you will, and I've said some things about Moynihan. You've said some horrible, hurtful things things. about Brian Moynihan. Uh, I've questioned his ability to drive revenue and drive business in the long term. (laughs) But I do not question his resiliency. When he took over Bank of America, that was a very tough time for the bank, and he toughed his way through it. I mean, secured the investment from Berkshire Hathaway in 2011. There were some very deep concerns in the summer of 2011. There was a rumor that J.P. Morgan was going to buy Bank of America. I mean, this was a bad time for the bank, and it would have been easy for this guy to leave and go do something else. He could have gone and worked for a private equity firm and made twice as much money, but he stuck it out. I think it's deserved. What do you think? That you just stole the word that I was going to use. It's deserved. It's deserved. And one of the key questions here coming out of the financial crisis for Moynihan or any other bank CEO is what are they actually doing? Because there's so much that the market is taking care of itself. As the, as the economy recovers, you're going to see loan volumes pick up. As, uh, as the housing market recovers, you're going to see credit quality improve. So what is that CEO actually doing? You gave a good example of when Bank of America was in trouble. Moynihan helped secure the investment from Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. That was a huge mm-hmm. notch for Bank of America. When we look at the results and the improvements at Bank of America, a lot of that is having to do with the economy and the housing market, mm-hmm. but a lot of that has to do with the new BAC plan, the cost cutting. That's really Closing on. 700 branches, employee count down. That is on Moynihan. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is, I think this is a d- deserved raise, and I think if he continues along this, he should get more uh, because he's still trailing the other big bank CEOs. All right, second scenario. Blank is the oddest thing I've seen an insurer admit to insuring. What do you got? I got a good one. You're going to have a tough time topping this. I'll top it. This is from Markel. Markel discloses this in its 10K, in its annual filing. It insures against equine infertility. Mm. Horses that can't have babies. 
Typical. It'll ensure you against your horse not having babies. And just because it's fun, here's a couple other things that Markel also ensures. Gymnastics and cheerleading school, martial arts school, show animal club liability, farrier and blacksmith liability, personal trainers, event planners, and pest control. I've got you beat. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Try it. Weirdest thing I've ever seen. Tom Jones, the singer, his chest hair is insured. (laughs) (laughs) There we got a picture of the young Tom Jones there by uh, Lloyd's of London, the the big insurance house over there. Seven million dollar insurance policy on Tom Jones's chest hair. Uh, I beat that. Lloyd's of London is kind of cheating because they insure all kinds of crazy stuff. So, so, what, so this is like if, uh, if somebody from the crowd rushes up and takes a razor to his hair. And yeah, you never know. It all. You never know what happens. Seven million. A couple other things I saw out there. Heidi Klum's legs are insured. Mariah Carey's as well. Uh, a English taster, food taster. Mariah has Carey's his, crazy as Has his taste buds insured. Wow. There you go. That's impressive. Very weird. Probably some hand models with it. It makes me think of uh, George Costanza. Zoolander. Hand models insured. All right, uh, we have one more scenario. Let's see the third scenario. I'd call Facebook blank if it bought a bank. So saw the big acquisition yesterday. I did see the big acquisition. It was hard to miss that big acquisition. I would call them, I'd call them insane. It would be interesting, but the returns that they can make on some of their businesses, banking returns are attractive, but the type of valuation that Facebook has and the returns that it would get from the bank and the regulations. Not worth it. Continuing on the one-upmanship theme, I will call them stupid if they buy a bank. That's just not that's not a business that Facebook should be getting into. It's highly regulated. Facebook has a lot of growth opportunities, a lot of different directions it can go. Owning an actual bank, not one of them that should be taking right now. Maybe we'll see them get into something like payments, peer-to-peer lending. Too. Exactly. Uh, that's well, a well, that's a platform that could potentially work, or a partnership with Prosper, or you never know, Lending Club. You never know. Before. All right. All right, uh, finishing off today in the Twitter sphere. David, what's our first tweet? First and last tweet is from Johnny at Money Wonk. He says, ideas for Tusk's inspiration on House of Cards. Maybe Blank Fine given his bald head, beard, and tentacles wrapped around the White House. So no spoilers here on House of Cards. You said you have not started the second season. I have not. I started the first episode of the second season. Who do you think Tusk is inspired by? Well, I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you do it. You, you knew this. You came up It's got to be Buffett, right? Yeah. For those of you who no don't question. watch, this is a billionaire who supposedly lives in St. Louis, owns a big conglomerate, and lives in a very humble house. So it's got to be Buffett, right? There's no question about it. But he's not bald. Buffett is not bald. That's a good observation, David. You're good with the observations. <laughs> yes. But I agree with you 100%. I'm going to go 100%. That is based on Warren Buffett. All right. Well, that's the show for today. You can find us on Twitter, at TMF Financials. You can find us on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services. And, of course, you can email us, email us, WTMI at fool.com. I'm Matt Copenheffer. Over here is David, Little Buffett Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.